I like to think that warm welcome was for me, but uh, <laughs> they say you're never supposed to follow children, so I'm going to try do the best I can with that. Um, how about this? Why don't we just start this way and make sure everybody's awake. He is risen! He is risen All right, good. You guys are awake. So this morning, 4.30 in the morning, my alarm clock went off. Now, I don't know what it's like for you when your alarm clock goes off at 4.30 in the morning. I don't know what is the first thought that comes into your mind when an alarm clock goes off at 4.30 in the morning. But I'll tell you that the first thought that comes into my mind is not something I care to repeat here this morning, right? <laughs> and this morning, my alarm goes off at 4.30 in the morning. I reach over, turn it off, and immediately the only thought in my mind was he is risen. It was so good just to wake up this morning and go, yes, this is the day. This is the greatest day of the year. This is the day that we have been waiting for. So when we shout, he is risen, he is risen indeed, it's such a joyful declaration. And, and I'm just so excited to get to share with you guys this morning in the worship of not just a religious figure who once walked the earth and made his point and left. Not just somebody who who, um, you know, was a good teacher, not just somebody who was a prophet or something like that, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence and who humbled himself to become a man so that he could die, so that we could live. That's who we're here to worship this morning. It's such an incredible privilege. There was a British pastor in the first part of the 20th century by the name of W.E. Sangster, who's a very well-known pastor at that time um, and an evangelist, and uh, a lot of people knew him. And, and the, in the last part of the 40s, he began to get sick, and uh, he had uh, a muscle disease, and basically it was slowly taking over his body, and one of the last um, things that he lost was his voice. This is a preacher have a preacher lose his voice. And so um, he wrote uh, a letter to his daughter. It was Easter morning of 1950, and it was just weeks before he went to heaven. And, and unable to speak, he woke up on Easter morning, and he wrote a letter to his daughter, and this is what he wrote. It is a terrible thing to wake up on Easter morning and not be able to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice, and not to want to shout it. Amen? Amen. It's, it's such an incredible thing, and so I hope you will forgive my enthusiasm today, but I've been up since 4.30 thinking about just one thing. He is risen! He is risen indeed! So we got reason to shout, amen? amen? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best news anybody has ever heard. It's not only life-changing news, it is eternity-changing news. And yet, it still takes people by surprise. It took the disciples by surprise. Even though Jesus had told them on multiple occasions, he sat them down, he said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be given over to the chief priests, and they're going to turn me over to the Romans, and they are going to kill me, and I am going to die and don't worry, because on the third day, I will rise again. He told them again and again and again. But somehow, apparently, they never got it. 
somehow, apparently, they always just assume that this is another one of those parables or another one of those analogies that he was always using, and they didn't really understand. So when he actually died, they were shocked. They were dismayed. They were brokenhearted. They had no idea what to do. And when they went to the tomb on that first Easter morning, and they knelt, they knelt down and looked inside, and they saw an empty tomb, they were surprised. They were blown away. There was, a, there was a squad of soldiers, Roman soldiers under penalty of death, who were put outside the tomb and told to guard a dead man. Now that's about as easy a job as you can get. Guard this dead guy, make sure he doesn't go anywhere. That's pretty easy weekend duty, right, if you're a soldier? And so they put him outside the tomb, and they surrounded the tomb, and under penalty of death, they were told to guard this dead man. But on Sunday, when the earth quaked, on Sunday, when the angel appeared, on Sunday, when the stone was rolled away, the scripture says that they fell down and became like dead men. You talk about surprise. Religious leaders were shocked. They absolutely thought they had it one. They had already gotten him past all the trials. They had gotten the Romans to agree to crucify him. He had gone to the hill of Golgotha carrying his own cross. He had been whipped. He had been scourged. He had been spat upon. He had been beaten. There was a crown of thorns nailed into his scalp, and he carried his own cross. They nailed him to the cross. He hung on the cross until he was dead. And just to make sure, as the, as the uh, Jewish religious leaders sat watching, the Roman soldier took a spear, thrust it up between his ribs, through his lung and into his heart, pulling it out, blood and water flowed out, showing that his heart had literally burst inside of his chest. Jesus died of a broken heart. And that the proof was there. They had seen it with their own eyes. So when the report came back to them from these soldiers, saying the tomb was empty, an angel came, he is risen, they freaked. And they made up a whole story and they created a conspiracy and they covered it up as best they could, but they couldn't because if you can't keep a dead man in the tomb, how are you going to keep a live man from preaching the good news? And Jesus uh, appeared to over 500 people in one appearance, and he came and encouraged his disciples, and he spent another 40 days before he rose into the sky and sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. See, everybody's surprised. Even today when I talk to people about Jesus and the resurrection, they are often surprised. They're often just like, I, I just don't, I mean, I, I don't get it. I, I think Jesus was a good teacher and all that, but this whole resurrection thing, I mean, dead people don't raise themselves, right? And so people are shocked. They don't get it. They don't understand. All of the proof, all of the historical evidence, all the scientific evidence doesn't matter to them because in their mind, this can't be. This isn't possible. And we are surprised. But listen, my goal today is to get rid of the surprise. My goal today is to help us understand that what Jesus did is exactly the kind of thing we should expect Jesus to do. Here's the reason. Our God is in the resurrection business. This is what he does. This is who he is. He specializes in impossible situations. His whole thing is to take a hopeless situation and infuse it with hope. His whole thing is to take a lifeless situation and fill it with life. He loves to make something that is dead come to life. 
He loves to restore the broken. He loves to give sight to the blind. He loves to give hope to the hopeless. He loves to give life to the spiritually dead. It's what he does. And we shouldn't be surprised. You know what? That's my only point today. So let's all go home. No, we're not going to do that. I still have a few minutes, so I'm going to talk even though I've already made my point. That's the only point I have. God is in the resurrection business. If you don't get anything else from what I say today, I want you to go home knowing for sure that the one and only God of the universe is in the resurrection business. This is what he does. And since my point has been made already, let me just take some time to illustrate it and help us to understand what it means to us. And I'm going to take you to a place that you had never heard preached on on Easter Sunday. It's all the way in the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you the story. It's the story of a guy who you have already heard of. You already know this story. Even if you're not a Bible student, if you've never read it in the Bible, if you just went to world history class, you know about this guy. And if you didn't pay attention to world history class, but you've seen the Broadway show, there was a Broadway musical made about his life. His name is Joseph. And his story unfolds at the end of the book of Genesis. And basically, I'm going to tell you his story really quickly. He was born uh, into a huge family with a ton of older brothers. And the problem that he had was very similar to the problem that a lot of younger brothers had, and that is he was a punk, right? And, and he was constantly antagonizing his older brothers. He was constantly annoying them. He was arrogant. He was full of himself. And he was just so sure that somehow he was better than the rest of them. And so they couldn't stand him. Now, the thing about Joseph, though, is that God had a special plan for his life, and he gave him a gift, a prophetic gift, that he would either have dreams that God would give him truth in these dreams, or when other people had weird dreams, they could tell him about their dreams, and he would be able to interpret the dream and help them to understand the truth from the dream. And so he would have these dreams, and it just seemed like in all of his dreams, they always ended up the same way. His older brothers were bowing down to him. And like a stupid punk little brother, he always went to them and said, hey guys, I had another dream today. Let me tell you what happened at this one. And they were getting so mad and so frustrated that they finally decided they were going to put an end to it. And so one day he came out while they were all uh, out with the sheep and, and taking care of grazing the sheep out in the wilderness. And they saw him coming and they had been talking about him already. And they said, then we're never going to get a better chance than this. We got to kill this kid. And so they decided that uh, they, would, they would kill him right then and there. And when he got to them, they jumped on him, and, and they threw him into a pit, um, a, like a, a cistern or a dry well. And they threw him down the well, and the idea was they're just going to leave him there and let him slowly die. Or if he's lucky, the animals will come and tear him apart. But one way or another, he's going to die. Now, I don't know what sibling rivalries were like in your family. I don't know what kinds of things you and your siblings did to one another. I think I was about as mean a sibling as there possibly could be. I tortured my brother every opportunity I had. One of the favorite things I used to do with my brother was uh, we would wrestle, and I would get him in like a scissor lock and squeeze him with my legs until he couldn't breathe anymore, and eventually he would pass out. And there was this awesome moment when there was a look on his face when his eyes would kind of bug out and then roll back. It was great. And I used to live for that moment. And he, I would squeeze him until he passed out. And then I would leave him on the living room floor and get up and walk away and let my mom just find him there sometimes. 
And it was just a great joy in my life to be able to torture my brother like that. Well, they, ki- they tried to kill him. They threw him in a pit. And then the, uh, an amazing thing happened. While they're having their lunch and he's down in the pit screaming and yelling, hey, come on, guys, this is enough. Come on, guys, get me out of here. They notice in the distance there's a band of traveling slave traders that are coming by. And they thought, this is perfect. We don't have to kill him. We can actually make money on the deal. And they pulled him out of the pit and they sold him into slavery. And the slave traders just continued moving. And little did they know, uh, they took him to Egypt. And when he got to Egypt, he was a strapping young man with an education, and he sold for big money. And he went to a high-ranking government official as a slave, and he put him to work in his house, and as he worked in his house, he proved himself, his character and his work ethic, and he proved himself to this guy whose name was Potiphar. He was the the head of the uh, Pharaoh's bodyguard. And uh, he eventually rose up to the place where he was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house, and there was only one thing in Potiphar's house he didn't have access to, and that was Potiphar's wife. But guess who wanted to have access to Joseph? Potiphar's wife. And she kept trying to seduce him, trying to seduce him, and he wouldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it. And finally, one day, she just grabbed him, and he took off running and left her, his robe in her hands and ran out of the house. And she called her husband, and she said, this slave that you brought, he came in and tried to force himself on me, and he left his robe. And with circumstantial evidence... And the fact that her husband was the king of the uh, prince of the king's bodyguard, they threw him into prison. He found himself in a dungeon way below the palace there in Egypt. And while he was there, people would come and go, and he would interpret their dreams for them. And he began to get a reputation as one who could interpret dreams. And one day, Pharaoh had a troubling dream, and he didn't know what he was going to do with it. And he knew that there was some message to it, but he didn't understand it. And none of his advisors could, could interpret the dream. And one of them said, you know, there's a guy in prison. He has a talent for this kind of thing. And they brought Joseph to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him about this dream. And in long and short of the dream is this. There's going to be seven years of um, plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And so you better get ready, because during the time of plenty, if you don't save up, during the time of famine, we're going to starve. And the Pharaoh saw such wisdom in Joseph that he put him in charge of managing the food for the country during those seven years of blessing. And he put away just enough so that during the seven years of famine, they would have enough food to feed the nation. And so Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt at the time when Egypt was the only superpower in the world. And I want you to just hear what happened. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read it to you from um, chapter 45 of Genesis. As uh, his story comes to an end, basically it's famine time now. People are starving, and his brothers come to him uh, because they've heard there's food in Egypt. They don't know he's alive. They don't know he's there. They don't know he has power. And they come, and they don't recognize him. And they're asking him for food, and they go through a long story until finally Joseph just cannot resist He has to reveal himself to his brothers. I want you to to hear what he had to say. Verse 4 of chapter 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. I bet at that moment you could have heard a pin drop in that room, right? Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all, his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You talk about a resurrection story. He was in the pit. And when he finally gets out of the pit, he thinks, okay, that's better. Oh, wait, I'm a slave. And now he's serving in slavery, and he works his way up in the house, and he thinks, okay, this is better. Oh, wait, I'm falsely accused. And I find myself buried in a dungeon where no one will ever hear my name again. But had God forgotten him? Was God, was God asleep during all this? Did God not know what was going on? No, he was perfectly active in Joseph's life, even during the times when Joseph couldn't possibly understand that God was working. Why? So that God could position him for a place of honor. So that God could position him for a situation in which he could change the world. See, listen, guys. Our problems are no problem to a sovereign God. A God who's in the resurrection business, the things he can do with our life when we fall in a hole, the things he could do to to restore us when we are broken, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Our God is in the resurrection business. Let me tell you another story from the Old Testament that nobody associates with Easter. It's in 1 Kings 17, and, and, and there's a woman. She lives in this little town called Zarephath. You've never heard of the town except for this story in 1 Kings 17. And, and she's a widow. Her husband has died in that culture in that time. A woman without a husband is in deep trouble. There's no way for her to take care of herself. And she's not just by herself. She has a son. And to make matters worse, there is a drought in the land so that water is the most scarce thing there is. There's very little food. There's very little water. There's very little opportunity. And quite frankly, she and her son are literally starving to death. And suddenly, along comes this guy named Elijah. He's a prophet of God. And as God's representative, he says to her, listen, I know you don't know me, but God sent me to you. And he told me you would feed me. She says to him, listen, uh, it's nothing personal. It's just that I have myself and my son, and we're in a famine. And you know what we have? We have just enough so that I could just bake this little bread cake. And we have this little jar of water. That's all we have. I just finished making this bread so my son and I could eat it and die. That's it. And he said, listen, I, I know that sounds scary to you. I know it looks like there's no way. I know it looks like there's no hope. But God has sent me to you, and God wants you to trust him. So he wants you to give me the food. That sounds like every charlatan you ever met, right? Just like the preachers on TV today that are saying, hey, listen, I know you're sick. I know the doctor said they could do nothing, but God will take care of you if you give me your money, right? That must have been what that sounded like to her. So I want you to take the only bread and the only water and give it to this man of God. And you know what? She did it. She went to bed. She woke up the next morning. She went to her kitchen, and there was a jar with just enough oil 
and a bag with just enough flour in it to make enough bread for that day. And every day she got up, and there was more oil, and there was more flour, and God carried her and her family and Elijah through the drought by providing for them miraculously every day. Now, that's a cool story, right? And, and you, if the story ended there, you say, what a great story. But the story doesn't end there. Because what happens at this very high moment when she finally goes, oh, yes, I can totally trust God. At that very moment, her son dies. Come on, God, seriously? I'm, I'm just starting to trust you. And this, this is the only thing I have. My son, the only thing I love. You've taken my son. And I want, I want you to hear how this story goes. I'm going to read it to you from 1 Kings 17. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. Listen. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself on the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Are you beginning to see my point? Our God is a resurrecting God. Our God is in the business of resurrection. We see it again in the New Testament with Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. We see it again with the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. We see it again with Lazarus in John chapter 11. Over and over and over again, God proves that no matter how deep or how dark your situation, he always, always has the power to bring life where there has only been death. Our God is in the resurrection business. But the greatest example, without question, is found in Mark chapter 16. If you happen to have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. New Testament, second book, book of Mark, the end of the book of Mark, chapter 16. And we're going to pick it up in Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the, at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. 
just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 5 says, when they got to the tomb and they looked inside and found it empty with just an angel sitting there, they were amazed. And what does the angel say to them? Don't be amazed. Why are you amazed? Why are you surprised? And it didn't make any difference. In verse 8 it says, they were filled with trembling and astonishment. And it's as if God is saying to us, listen, how many times do I have to tell you who I am? How many times do I have to show you my interest in you goes deeper than you could possibly imagine? How many times do I have to remind you that I am the Lord of life and I am able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or even think? So as we gather here this morning and we bend down and gaze into the empty tomb, I want to encourage you, don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Don't be astonished. God is just acting like God. That's why the tomb is empty. Our God is in the resurrection business. Now I want to get personal with you. I just want to ask you to think about this in your heart. Where do you find yourself this Easter morning? What's going on in your life? What's going on in your heart? Do you find yourself in a time of darkness? Do you find yourself in a time of despair? Do you find yourself in a time of discouragement? Does your situation seem hopeless? Have you exhausted all your resources and still you can't solve it? If that even remotely describes you, I have great news. You're exactly the kind of person God loves to work with. This is exactly the kind of situation where his light shines brightest in the midst of darkness. There is still nothing that is beyond his power because our God is still in the resurrection business. He was in the resurrection business in the book of Genesis. He was in the resurrection business in the book of 1 Kings. He was in the resurrection business in the book of Mark and the book of Luke and the book of John in the book of Matthew in the book of Acts and all throughout the scriptures. And he has stayed in the resurrection business since the closing of the canon of scripture. God has not changed. And I want us to grab on to the hope of a God who is in the resurrection business. He is still about raising those who cannot raise themselves. I love James 4.10. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will raise you up. It's what he still does. You may find yourself in a time of brokenness, mourning, despair, confusion. But our God is still in the resurrection business. If you traveled to Moscow today, you could get in line with a bunch of other tourists at the Kremlin. And you could file through the Kremlin past the tomb of Vladimir Lenin, the father of Russian communism, one of the most prolific mass murderers in the history of the world. And his body is on display in the Kremlin. Now, he died a long time ago. When I say his body is on display, I don't mean his tombstone is on display. I don't mean his coffin is on display. I mean his decaying body 
is on display, pumped full of preservatives and covered in makeup. And people file by Lenin's tomb and take pictures of Vladimir Lenin every day. And next to his body is an inscription, and this is what it reads. He was the greatest leader of all people of all time. He was the Lord of the new humanity. He was the Savior of the world. Aren't you glad to know that if you were to go past the tomb of Jesus today, the actual Savior of the world, that you would not find a body stuffed full of formaldehyde and covered in makeup. You would find an empty tomb. And there's one reason, my friends. Our God is in the resurrection business. And that's why it thrills me every Easter to gather with the people of God and to remember such a simple statement, such a basic idea that he has risen, but to stop and to think what that means for you and me as we step in our pits and we go through our trials and we go through our despair. There is nothing, there is nothing that God cannot do to bring light into darkness. And let us cling to the nail-pierced hands of the risen Jesus. And let us watch 